I don't know how widely known this is, but Winston Churchill, the storied British prime minister, was actually half American. Indeed, his mother was from Brooklyn. So perhaps it's fitting that he would be the first to term the alliance between the United States and Britain a special relationship. Today, the term endures as the United States and the United Kingdom work together through NATO, through joint operations in Afghanistan, and diplomatically on just about every international relations issue from Syria to Libya to Iran to Ukraine. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is one of the curators of that special relationship, Sir Peter Westmacott, British Ambassador to the United States. Sir Peter, an honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure. So the next NATO conference is scheduled for, I believe it's in September, and it's going to be in the UK. Is that correct? That's right. So uh, how appreciative are you that uh, President, Russian President Vladimir Putin has given you all something to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a few months ago, there were people who were saying, first of all, why have you Brits decided to host a NATO summit? All it is is a lot of trouble and a lot of expense and security costs and so on. Uh, and secondly, well, apart from Afghanistan, where we're not quite sure where we will be, what is there to talk about? Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, that question is no longer being put because I think that one of the things that we now do know as a result of Mr. Putin's behavior is that NATO has a very real role. Uh, there is no longer any question of saying, what's it for? And there are a bunch of questions which will arise and which will need to be addressed. I'm sure we will be talking about Afghanistan, by the way, mm. uh, and we'll need to talk about a number of regular NATO subjects, transformation, interoperability, capabilities, all that kind of stuff, which the mm. NATO buffs uh, talk about. But I think that what we will also be having to think about very seriously is the security of the member states of NATO uh, in Europe and where do we go in terms of the enlargement agenda, which in the past has been very important. What about resources? Uh, what are we able to do in terms of honoring our commitments to ourselves? And what do we do about uh, partnerships with non-NATO countries which are in the same region and, and share, broadly speaking, the same security interests as the rest of us? I think the Russian annexation of Crimea um, has brought up the specter of Russia in the context of the Cold War. At the same time, President Obama has recently uh, referred to Russia as just a regional power. Is there a reason why NATO needs to exist to counteract Russia? NATO, of course, was built out of a sense of insecurity, mainly in continental Europe, after the Second World War. Uh, and we all understand why those guarantees were necessary, even more necessary after what you might call a, a Soviet land grab for parts of Central Europe, which we all contributed to liberating uh, after the defeats, uh, at the time of the defeat of Germany. So there was a very good reason for NATO to come into existence at that stage. I think as life settled down and we thought we had got a broad international consensus for certain international rules that you didn't steal your neighbor's territory, that you did respect the rule of law and constitutions, uh, particularly after the end of the Cold War, then people were beginning to say, well, you know, do we need this? We've got a framework, but what's its role? Uh, and those were questions that uh, are legitimate, were legitimate. I think today what we're going to have to think about is uh, not so much do we need an alliance, but it's you know, how do we best go about ensuring that the security of those countries is guaranteed? Because I'm sorry to say that one of the conclusions we have to draw from President Putin's behavior over the last few weeks is that we cannot rely on him to respect the rule of law or the territorial integrity of neighboring countries. Uh, he talks about other bits of Moldova. Uh, he talk he's already uh, helped himself to a chunk of Georgia in the past. Uh, and now through this, what we regard as illegal and improper 
proper and unconstitutional uh, annexation of Crimea. He's shown that he doesn't play by what we all thought were the more or less accepted international rules. So I think there is still a need for that alliance. And if you ask some of the countries which border on uh, the Russian Federation, they will give you an unequivocal a response that is absolutely vital for their future security. The New York Times recently had a report talking about the status of the forces in Europe, uh, NATO forces in particular, and how they've been uh, drawn down significantly since the Cold War. Do you think that was part of the calculation when um, you know Russia decided to move their troops into the rest of Crimea and take control there? I can't really calculate uh, the thought processes which went on inside uh, President Putin's mind. All I would say is this, that of course, even if you hadn't had declining uh, military expenditure, which sometimes, by the way, has been matched by increasing capabilities and higher technology and better equipment, even if you hadn't had that, you were not going to have NATO uh, treating non-NATO countries as uh, countries for which it had the Article 5 territorial guarantees, which exist for mm -hmm. members of NATO. So. Uh, Whatever happened, I think it is, in my view anyway, extremely unlikely uh, that NATO allies, even with higher levels of defense spending, would have gone to the military rescue of Ukraine in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Still, there was the Budapest Memorandum that um, was an agreement between Ukraine, Russia, and the United States. Sta and the United Kingdom. Of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, basically, Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons in exchange for guarantees on their territorial integrity. I think there's one thing I need to be clear about, which is that the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 was not a guarantee of the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Uh, there was a commitment that we would all consult uh, in the event that there was a threat to uh, Ukraine's security. We tried to do just that in the mm -hmm. framework of Budapest Memorandum. The Russians, who are signatories to it, declined uh, to do so. But it's not the same thing as the clear guarantees that are given under Article 5 of the NATO Treaty right. to those states. So while we very much regret and have said so extremely cl clearly and have applied a number of strong sanctions, which can be very easily increased uh, if Russia stays on the present path uh, in the context of Ukraine and Crimea, uh, it's not the same thing. And there are no commitments to Ukraine from which uh, the other signatories of the Budapest Memorandum have walked away. I think we need to be clear about that, mm -hmm. however much we may regret what President Putin has done. The sanctions are, have been fairly heavy, but it seems like there hasn't been any reaction from the Russians on, you know, uh, maybe stepping back or even uh, attempting to find those off-ramps that have been built. Um, do you think that this is something that is just going to draw on to, into the future where Crimea is just going to be in a disputed uh, area for, you know, the next decades? Well, we hope not. Uh, you're quite right that none of the off-ramps that we have offered to President Putin have been taken advantage of. Uh, we continue to make clear uh, that all this is reversible, uh, that we do not wish to have a state of permanent tension with Russia. We would much rather have a different relationship on the basis of the various agreements, including the founding act between NATO and Russia, uh, that we had in years gone by. Uh, this is not a state of affairs that we would like. We would much rather that Putin was able to define his and Russia's identity in some other way than opposition to the West and our values and our territorial integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, he has chosen, for the time being, um, a different path. So um, we're not quite clear where that, where that, will, where that will go at this stage. Mm -hmm. 
We've been working now for quite some time to find some resolution on uh, nuclear development in Iran. The most recent development in that has been the six-month uh, agreement that was reached in part due to Rus Russia's involvement. Um, is this whole situation putting that that agreement and perhaps a further agreement to potentially halt nuclear development in Iran in jeopardy? I think it's a very good question. We have to ask ourselves uh, whether what has gone on in Ukraine is going to impact on the areas in which Western countries work together with the Russians, and Iran is, is one obvious one. They're also important, of course, for the Middle East peace process, on mm -hmm. which Secretary John Kerry is working so intensively through their participation in the quartet. Uh, and in theory, anyway, they ought to be part of trying to find a solution to the Syrian crisis, where, mm -hmm. to be honest, except for a modest amount of help on the chemical weapons, we have not found uh, Russia to be very helpful in trying to find a political settlement uh, to end the slaughter of uh, the civilians in Syria. So um, I think we, we don't really know uh, at the present stage where this is going to go. The only thing I would say is that in the negotiations that we have been having over the last few days on Iran, uh, it's been perfectly clear that the Russians wish to continue uh, to play uh, a constructive role. Mm -hmm. There's certainly no evidence that they are becoming more difficult. Um, equally, I don't de detect myself, though I haven't been there at the conference table, mm -hmm. uh, that they are making a spectacular additional effort to try to be helpful in other areas to compensate uh, for the terrible things that they have been doing in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It seems uh, from, I suppose, Iran's perspective, it might be even more difficult to give up any kind of nuclear development program, given what's happened in Crimea, given the history of the Budapest mem Memorandum and the fact that uh, Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons. And here, this has happened 20 years later. Um, is that going to be a problem? Well, clearly, we don't want uh, the Iranians to draw the conclusion uh, from the Ukrainian experience, or indeed from North Korea or Libya, for mm -hmm. that matter, that giving up on a nuclear weapons capability is bad news in terms of your own domestic security, which is one reason why whatever the different uh, course of action we decide to embark upon, we have to try to make clear to President Putin that this is the wrong call mm -hmm. uh, and that the international community does not accept it. Uh, we have to get him to change course, and mm -hmm. we certainly have to discourage him from doing anything more in, in this direction, like you know, moving into other parts of Ukraine or going into parts of Moldova or, God forbid, you know, NATO territory. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that uh, the world or Ukrainians or indeed other people like Iran, as you say, doesn't conclude that in order to succeed in international diplomacy, you've got to have a nuclear military capability. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it is one of the dangers, one of the uh, foolhardy aspects of what President Putin has done. Well, Sir Peter Westmacott, thank you so much for being on Polyscast today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to HKS Policycast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast.